Welcome back to a new season of the Classical Music Pod, coming to you from the leaf-strewn surroundings of Dulwich Wood. We're trying out a slightly different format this season with shorter but more frequent episodes that alternate interviews with news and musical tidbits. We'll be kicking off with an interview episode featuring the organist, conductor, broadcaster and all-round classical music superstar Anna Lapwood. Anna Facts. Anna Lapwood was born in 1995 in Royston, Hertfordshire. Royston! Growing up, she tried her hand at a number of musical instruments, studying piano, violin, viola, and composition at the Junior Royal Academy of Music, later becoming principal harpist with the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. I like your BBC News presenter delivery. Keep Thank it going. Thank you. Call me Zeb Sones. After school, she gained a first-class degree in music from Magdalen College, Oxford, where she was the first organ scholar in the college's 560-year history. Wow. In 2016, aged just 21, she became director of music at Pembroke College, Cambridge, becoming the youngest ever person to hold such a post at an Oxbridge college. Two years later, she founded the Pembroke Girls' Choir, which she runs alongside the Chapel Choir. You can hear them both on the 2020 album, all things are quite silent. Anna appears regularly as a contributor on BBC Radio 3 and has presented several BBC television programmes, including Young Musician of the Year. Her first album of solo organ music, Images, was released in September this year, shortly before she performed Sanson's Organ Symphony with the Halle and Sir Mark Elder at the BBC Proms. Anna and I had a wide-ranging conversation that covered the emotional art of transcription, the hot potato that is mixing boy and girl choristers, and the role of secular music in sacred spaces. But I started by passing on an apology from Sam. I wanted to start, actually, by passing on an apology from my co-host Sam, Sam Poppleton. He was a lay clerk at Magdalen while you were a well you were organ scholar there and um apparently the last time you guys hung out or were as this going as, yeah I know uh he had too much to drink out of a horn and ended up throwing up in your college bathroom so he which sounds just so fantastically Oxbridge it's like something out of Brideshead isn't it so he he's passing on his deepest apologies and I don't that's... know if I remember that, but thank you for reminding me. <laughs> no, that's a pleasure. 
that was kind of by that point at your university career when you were in Organs College, you'd had many musical iterations. It's fair to say because you'd been a harpist with National Youth Orchestra, you'd been a a singer with Gareth Malone's Quiet, string player, composer, Junior Royal Academy. But was it maudlin that you sort of decided to make the organ your, I don't know, primary mode of musical expression? I guess so. I mean, I when I turned up at Maudlin, had very little experience and uh, had a very steep learning curve and didn't sort of get it straight away. I think the first year I found really, really hard. And I think I found my resignation letter that I drafted a couple of months ago. Uh, but I'm wow. very glad I never sent it. I mean, it really, I was sort of thinking, why am I doing this? I've trained as a harpist. Why am I putting myself through the stress of having to learn a whole new musical world and a new instrument? And then I sort of said, pull yourself together and practice more. And so I did. And then completely fell in love with the whole world and not just the music, but the buildings and the people and the humour that surrounds the choral world, which I think is very special. So I guess it was that point where I started to think, well, maybe this could be something that I take more seriously. And then it was when I moved to Pembroke that uh, I guess the whole sort of conducting an organ as a dual path became clear that that was what I uh, that was what I wanted to do. Mm. I was reading I dragged up a very old interview that you gave whilst you I presumably whilst you were still at university um with 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 some quotes that possibly around the time that you were drafting your resignation letter which said first of all everything's a lot more mathematical with the organ it's much harder to have a purely musical experience and then you also said with really epic choir pieces you get those oh wow moments but i've had far more with orchestras <laughs> so. yeah but it's i mean i think i was that was probably at the stage where i was still thinking why have i done this why yeah. have i given up all those years of work but mm. i do i mean i do stand by a little bit of what i said there in that it is very mathematical playing the organ if you're accompanying a choir i mean it when you're accompanying you can't really focus on making music you're focusing on how far ahead do i need to play in any particular bar because it changes a little bit depending on the speed of the music that you're playing and the building you're in so it's all an exercise in lining up with what's happening downstairs often meaning you can't play with what you hear mm. so whereas if you're playing in an orchestra i mean there's a little bit of that but not as much i don't think i mean what about it as a listener would you stand by that but purely as a listener going to a an orchestral concert versus going to a choral concert or a or organ recital or is it too hard to say where you'd have the most vibrant musical experience I think you can definitely have equally vibrant experiences in all three of them I would say the organ sits at a slight disadvantage uh, in most concert settings in that so often you can't see the player if you think about when you go to see a concert, you're going to see as well as hear. And for most instrumentalists, they emote not just through the sounds they create, but through their whole bodies and through their facial expressions and through little moments of shutting their eyes, things like that. Organists don't have that luxury. And so we're suddenly asking an audience to listen in a much more attentive way than they might do in a violin recital or a piano recital. So they hit listen more critically. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I think for me, I feel that's one of the reasons that people think they don't like organ music and organ recitals because they aren't used to being asked to listen to, like, to things like that in a concert setting.
that brings us nicely onto onto the album, I suppose, and the, the images which came out last month on Signum, which is recorded at Ely Cathedral. In fact, Ely Cathedral itself feels very much like a a hidden character in this album. Can you explain what the importance of that building is in this particular recording? Yeah, I think uh, the building is so integral to uh, your performance as an organist because more than any other instrumentalist, you are entirely dependent on it. So uh, the the acoustics of that particular space and often the organ, the particular organ is designed to work in those particular acoustics in a certain way. And I guess what I really wanted to capture with images is a little bit of the magic that we get to experience behind closed doors when we walk into one of these spaces and it's completely pitch black and we have the run of an ancient cathedral. We get to walk in, let ourselves into the organ loft. That's the, we're the only light in the building. And then we get to shape the sound of the silence and turn it into something more meaningful and play with the quietest stops, all the loudest stops and everything in between. Um, and it's that, yeah, the interplay between the building and the sounds that we can create that I hope I managed to capture a, a little bit because every building has a different character and Ely in mm-hmm. particular. Yeah, I gather from Sam again, uh, of Horn fame, who uh, he, he told me that there's a weird kind of shape uh, underneath the cross. It's kind of like a, a an octagon. O- yeah, the octagon. Kind of, the octagon. That's it, and that has a particular effect on the acoustic, as you say. So, and and you wrote in your in your notes to the album on the Britain and the Owen Park piece and the Prince Brig piece. The building is very much written into the music there. So specifically, I suppose, the Britain, because you came up with your transcriptions on that cathedral organ, am I right? Yeah, so the, the Britain started its life in my head, basically, and uh, I, I wrote most of it over lockdown. So I was sitting at home with my the little practice organ that I've got in my flat, basically practising it on just little eight-foot flutes. So it's quite hard to get a sense of what, what it's going to sound like. And I was sort of thinking, is this going to work? And then Ely is kind of the, the most local large instrument that I could get access to. So I got to toddle along, along there when I'd actually finished the transcription and try it out and see if it did work. And I do remember the moment I played Sunday morning. I think it was that that I started with. And there's that wonderful build up before the mm. recap of the main theme. And I kind of set it all up because you obviously have to set your sounds before you play an organ piece. I spent about an hour just setting it up so quite boring really it's not very musical again it's sort of getting the right balance of crescendos and uh, sounds coming from different places and then I thought right I'm just going to try it and I played that whole passage and I just had the biggest grin on my face because it was that moment of thinking this works this isn't just something that was in my head and a completely crazy stupid idea it actually works What I find interesting about transcription is this balancing act where you're constantly walking the line between accurately representing a sound, but also being true to the feel of the music. Well, I I guess particularly in in Dawn, I remember when I first did Dawn, 
um, the, uh, the big chords that come in. So the string starts and then there's that flourish and then there's the chords, those very dark chords, which I think are, again, lower brass in the original. And so when I first did it, I sort of did try it on some brassy stops, but it just is completely the wrong feeling on the organ because mm. I don't know, it just, it didn't feel right. And actually that, those chords, when I heard them and thought, what is the most organy way to replicate them? It was sort of seemed obvious to me that it should be strings because it provides the same effect. The string, the soft string stops on the organ are brilliant when you put them underneath the box and you can give them real dynamic shaping. And so, yes, it's not lower brass, but I hope it says something similar. I was watching an interview that you did, or a chat with, that you did with your dad. Can you explain what this, why this piece has such a special meaning for you and him? Yeah, so uh, uh, my dad grew up in Suffolk, and so uh, was basically as far back as I can remember, I was walking along the very wet Suffolk coast. And it is, I mean, I, I don't know if you've been there, but it's yeah. such a kind of iconic landscape mm -hmm. the bleakness the, the comforting bleakness of the sea in Suffolk is is something that it just has been there all the way through my life and then the music of Britain has also been there all the way through because my dad played me Britain all the way through my childhood again and he when he was a kid played the violin for Britain uh, in a performance of Noah's Flood uh, in Orford Parish Church, and Britain tapped him on the shoulder and said, well done. Uh, so it, he's kind of, yeah, there's something about Britain's music that for me always makes me feel a little bit like I'm going home. Yeah. <laughs> so for some reason when you said that, that reminded me of a, a quote in Gladiator when he said, and Marcus Aurelius tapped me on the shoulder. He did not, I did not say I knew that man. I don't know if you know that. I love Gladiator, yeah. Oh, you know, I didn't say I knew Marcus Aurelius. I said he tapped me on the shoulder. <laughs> That's exactly it. The, I, I suppose, you know, as we said, most people's experience of the organ is as a congregational instrument that's powerful and loud, but as a solo instrument, as you've demonstrated in this album, there are a lot of other personalities. Um, I'm thinking, or you wrote in your notes that the Andantino, the Debussy, is a really good example of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what what are the pieces for you that are incredibly good at displaying those gentle, subtle organ personalities in this album, and why? So I think the Debussy is is an excellent example. I mean, it's another one where if people know the original, they might come to it slightly sceptical, thinking this isn't going to work. But the organ has this extraordinary capacity for warmth. Uh, and uh, the building, again, really plays into it in this piece as well, because there are these, the, towards the end of the piece, there's been a massive crescendo, everything's built up, and then it comes back to nothing. And you can just hold the feeling of silence in a huge, huge building. You can hold that and then fall in. 
to the to the sort of recap of the tune from the beginning. Uh, so that that's a wonderful example. I think also the Messia, uh, the Vocalese, which is another um, arrangement that I did for this album. It, it's a, a really, really, really wonderful piece of Messia. It's kind of Messia meets jazz lounge, I like to say. And the way I arranged it was I put the piano, I kept the piano part in the hands, added a couple of sustained notes to try and mimic a sustaining pedal, and then put the melody into the feet just on a two foot stop. So a really quiet, high, beautiful, open sound. And then again, the building, you couldn't do that in a dry acoustic. You couldn't do that piece in a dry acoustic because the building then acts as a sustaining pedal, merging everything together and creating an effect as opposed to a series of notes. Friedrich Handel's And With His Stripes We Are Healed from The Messiah Part 2. Kyrie eleison from Mozart's Requiem. There's a really healthy number of contemporary composers on this disc represented, other than yourself. We've got pieces by Patrick Gowers, Krenza Briggs. I don't know if I'm saying her first name correctly. Is it Carenza? Carenza. Uh, Owen Park, Cheryl Francis Hode. Is that a sign that contemporary organ composition is in a is in a very healthy state is that is this disc representative of a healthy wider organ composing world i think it is in 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 quite a good state i think as organists we do sit off to one side a little bit and i think if, if a composer is i don't know going through conservatoire and thinking right what what pieces do i really want to write or what pieces should i be writing as a up and coming composer they're probably not going to go to the organ straight away. I mean, they're going to think they have to do their string quartet and something for orchestra and some choral things. The organ isn't naturally going to cry out for them. So I've been doing as much work as I can in the last couple of years to work with contemporary composers and say, please write an organ piece for me. <laughs> uh, but, and just kind of, again, trying to get rid of some of those stereotypes and sit with them and show them what is possible. Uh, and try out ideas with them and just uh, kind of open up the organ world a little bit more. I mean, all of these pieces were pre-existing, but I, I, I've commissioned 12 new organ works uh, from female composers with Stainer and Bell, which are going to be released uh, hopefully later this year. And yeah, bringing, bringing, I think, nine of those composers to writing for the organ for the first time. It's, it's such a fun instrument. Why wouldn't you want to write for it? You said in the past... It's harder to find organ works by women to use in services. 
why, why do you th- well firstly have i got that right is that i think that is what i said yeah i'm pretty sure you said that. not sure when but <laughs> not sure when. But you, you're what? very well researched by the way you're oh. dragging oh, you... out all these quotes but... <laughs> but you gotta do your due diligence don't you? but why do you think that is a lot of when i was first trying to find organ music by women sort of right at the beginning of this whole journey i've had with uh, female composers and trying to help kind of shine a light on them I found a lot of very, very difficult, huge pieces. So kind of, I don't know, nine minutes long and fiendishly hard. So you really had to spend, you had to dedicate, I don't know, three months to to learning it. And I think that it's really important that we do learn those pieces and give them just as much time and energy and effort as we would to say the music of Bach. But... If you're writing for an organist for services, you want to be writing something that doesn't take them three months to learn, that they can get into their repertoire slightly quicker. I mean, pre-service voluntary, something that's three minutes long, gentle, slow, quiet, sets the mood. So useful. Every organist needs a bank of those. Um, And so I've been trying to sort of seek out more of that kind of thing and commission that kind of thing. And then finding liturgically appropriate pieces as well uh the moment you put a sort of liturgical marker on a piece it becomes a little bit easier to add into the repertoire because you can just think whenever you get to that time of year oh yes i could do that what makes it specifically liturgical what about the music sorry i'm displaying my ignorance here it, I mean, it, it, so in the case of the Stainer Rebel project, we've been basing every piece on a piece of Gregorian chant. Right. Uh, and we've tried to go for the sort of slightly more well-known ones. Uh, and so the, the, it would probably, it would then tie in with the music that was in the rest right. of the service because this chant crops up over and over again. But it could just be a case of giving your piece a liturgical title and writing something joyous and uplifting for Easter, slightly more sombre for Lent, or pretty mm. sombre for Lent probably. I mean... Essentially, I think it's, I'm just trying to think of ways that music can easily enter the repertoire as opposed to it having to be a slog, because we're all trying to do the same thing, I hope. Mm. Is there an element of not wanting to programme or, or have something in, in the service that is sort of overtly secular or is there a a sort of strict dividing line for you there or are you quite happy to allow things to blur I mean your all things are are quite silent you had I mean obviously this is choral music so it's slightly different but you had a lot of what I would call overtly secular music you had Laura Mm. and Vula tracks is that something that you is different with the organ You're, you're trying to create more of a secular uh, uh, religious entertainment versus serving line or, or are you quite happy to allow those things to blur a little bit? I've always been happy to let them blur because I think we're living in an increasingly blurred society mm. in that respect. I think it, it, I, mean, I see it working in a university. I see the fact that the students who come in are now mostly secular Uh, we do still have we do still have some people who are very strong Christians but the numbers are way lower than I remember them being even when I was at university and uh, certainly from when I was growing up and just uh, people don't seem to go to church anymore and I think we have to be responsive to that as people who work in the church and think what is our role and surely our role is helping people see the church as a safe welcoming open space that they can 
use for what they need, whether it's as a sort of mental health resource or as a place for worship. Um, mm. I, I think it, it, so. Our, our services of Compline here at Pembroke, we often do a sacred piece and a secular piece. Secular in inverted commas. I mean, I wouldn't do anything with swear words in or anything like that. But <laughs> it, 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 I think it, it, for me, it doesn't always have to be overtly sacred. Yeah. And we do the same with readings. Actually, we have one secular reading and one sacred reading. Mm. Your the Pembroke Girls Choir which you set up in 2018 and that which is featured on the the album I just mentioned all things are quite silent was the impetus for setting that up did that come from the same place as the impetus to uh to commission these female uh composers to write organ works is it is it about um getting more people into that more women into that world um so there's more visibility and, and to keep building that momentum it's, it's really interesting actually because when I look back to when I, the time when I was setting up the girls choir this was before the whole female composer thing had become a big deal for me I mean when I turned up at Pembroke I think I only knew one piece by a woman mm. I think I we uh, Bingham Epiphany was the only piece of choral music I knew by a woman and I just thought there wasn't any or that it was bad I don't know why it's just what I kind of grown up to think for whatever reason despite the fact that I like to think of myself as pretty pro women in general um and so the girls choir came about because the daughter of one of the fellows here uh, was very confident and just came up to me one day and said I think you need to set up a girls choir and I thought okay I'll set up a girls choir and I didn't have any idea of how much it was going to shape my view on music and the world more generally because suddenly I was seeing young people interact with this world that I'd come to know and love and seeing the difficulties they faced in interacting with it and the not seeing themselves represented on the music list how do you tell an 11 year old that there are no good pieces by women which I obviously don't think is true but how do you tell an 11 year old girl that Mm. I and so I just thought I guess they kind of they motivated me to try and change things a little mm. bit. I suppose in the intervening years, you've become, or certainly it's my impression that you've become something of a lightning rod for the conversation around women in not just church music, composition, organ music, partly because of the work you've done with visibility. I mean, you're quite visible on social media. Your your hashtag, Play Like a Girl, you've got your Barkathons, your, your work that you did with Classical Cambridgeshire, programming women composers, obviously the Girls' Choir, your Cambridge Organ Days. Do you have, or do you feel a responsibility uh, to be leading that conversation? And, and is that a different responsibility to your male colleagues? And is that fair, do you think, that you... <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I can find it frustrating because I think the moment you uh, I, the moment you pin your flag to that mast, it's very easy for people to only associate you with that. And I mean, I 
for the record, I want to encourage everyone to compose. I want to encourage mm. everyone to play the organ. I want to encourage everyone to join the choral world. It's not just that I think I, I try and if, if a male, young male organist wants to wants me to show him around Cambridge, I do and I have. Uh, and I think it's very easy for people to pigeonhole you and think, oh, yes, she's the one who always bangs on about gender. Mm. Um, it's also something that is uh, so often in any kind of um, mainstream press. That's just what they focus on. Nothing else. I mean, I've done interviews in the past where we chat for an hour about everything. And then they only print the two minute chat we had on gender and simplify it. And so it, that side of things can be tricky. But having said that, I think when you're in a position of power, such as a director of music in a Cambridge college, and you are female, and that is still a little bit of a novelty, and you're young and you have ideas, I think you have a responsibility to speak up for what you believe in and call people out if mm. they're not, if they just are refusing to, uh, not refusing to change, but refusing to listen. Yeah. I think it should all be about listening and having open conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. We, we talked about introducing girls into the top line of all male choirs on the podcast before. Actually, Sam and I have chatted about this. Choirs like King's and, and John's. And you've worked with an all boys top line at Magdalen and an all girls choir at Pembroke. Do you ever envisage working in a choir with a mixed top line? Uh, <laughs> it's difficult. Um, I personally think that gendered spaces are quite important. Okay. And can be quite positive. And I think in general in society, we're sort of moving away from that. But having grown up in an all-girls school, I really benefited in many mm. ways from that environment. I mean, I also, uh, some bits of it were not as good, but I think I benefited from th that. And I think you do treat girl and boy choristers differently. I mean, I, I know it probably shouldn't be the case, but they just, they do, they, people require different things. And I mean, for example, I remember when I was at school, I still remember when a teacher gave me a detention unfairly in year eight. Girls hold grudges. And I think you have to be aware of that as a, when you're working with girls. Boys, in my experience, don't in quite the same way um, and will are much more likely to just sort of forget something. Uh, and so you can be a little bit more sarcastic and, and banter is the wrong word, but it, do you see where I'm going with it? it yeah. It's a slightly different social atmosphere between the two. And I also think possibly more importantly, there have been a couple of studies done which show that introducing girls into a um it, mixing a top line to have girls and boys the girls tend to gain confidence quicker than the boys and push the boys out and i think we have to be really really cautious about that happening because yes in the choral worlds the balance is skewed towards boys the opportunities are skewed towards boys but if you look outside of the choral world to any other primary school choir and a community choir the numbers of girls far outweigh boys and fast forward to university choral scholarship auditions we're always looking for tenors and basses and we always have a lot of sopranos and altos so i think we do need to be cautious and careful and it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all solution yeah yeah it's really it's a really complex argument isn't it and 
I think the the temptation is to is to try and simplify it. Certainly, or certainly, I've had conversations where people can't quite understand the nuance of it. Mm. How do you think we're going to set about? Because you, you said obviously that the opportunities for boys at Kings and Johns they're they're amazing. They've got the library, the the adults singing behind them, the quality of the adults, the, the quality of the director, the the beauty of the building, the the number of services they're singing. How are we going to set about creating the same opportunities for girls in a sector that's already strapped for cash? I mean, that, I think that's mm-hmm. the crux of it, isn't it? And I'm not, I'm not expecting you to have the answers to this. Or, and again, I'm afraid you've become a bit of a lightning rod for this because... But uh, you say that, but I think everyone always expects me to have the opposite opinion of what I have. Uh, because right. if you if you ask me about the, the all-male choirs, I think they're really important. And I think they shouldn't be attacked in the way they often are attacked Mm. i having said that i think it is outrageous that there is nowhere yet as far as i'm aware where a girl chorister can sing uh, certainly nowhere in oxbridge a girl chorister can sing six services a week and get the money off the school fees and get the financial benefits so we have all these girl choirs springing up all over the place, which are fantastic and brilliant. And so many of my colleagues are doing such amazing work. I love to see it. But so often it doesn't actually bring equality. It right. brings um, a, a, a band-aid, to use an American term. <laughs> it's, a qu- it's a quick fix. Yes. Um, but I feel as if to achieve real equality, we need something more. Yes. And I mean, we haven't even touched on... Uh, socioeconomic problems I, I mean for example you guys are aiming for you've, you've got a certain ratio of state private that you're aiming for, for with a Pembroke uh, girls choir am I right and and that's mm-hmm. another that's an, another huge challenge that we've got across the industry and in that there are you know private school children are, are vastly overrepresented in many of these choirs and that's something mm-hmm. that, that, that there's no easy fix for either so I, but then the other the other thing which complicates it sorry here we no, go the other thing no, that complicates it is that i mean i found personally that having a girls choir that's slightly older is brilliant because uh, we start at 11 and we go up to 18 and i find that the older voices do bring something different to the sound and very important to the sound and mean we can explore rep that goes lower for example because younger girls can't sing as low um and i so i think sort of 11 to 15 is a really great age to be working with girl choristers obviously you can't work with boy choristers past the age of what 13 14 depending on when when their voices break so if we try and create something equal do we take the older girls and if so how do they sing the same number of services because they've got gccs and a levels So it's not it's not quite as simple as uh, Twitter would have us believe sometimes. Yeah. Well, yeah, it sort of isn't that the case with everything, unfortunately. Drop it. It isn't worth it. And actually, you're not very good at it. Well, I've prepared... For the final little bit of this, if you if you have time, shout if you need to go. But I have prepared a small organ quiz, which I've deliberately made quite hard. Oh uh, God, I'm going to be really bad at this. <laughs> if, if you get over fifty percent, we will make some mugs um, with 
uh, the classical pod logo and possibly uh, Anna Lapwood's special mug or something. So wow, we, we're, we're going to no com- we're committing. Yeah, we're committing to that. Okay, um, you, you might you okay. might surprise yourself. Question one: Which composer called the organ the king of instruments? Mozart. One. Yes. Correct. What is the oldest organ in the world still in continuous use? I don't know. No? It is no. the Basilica of Valère in Sion, Switzerland. Uh, really? Apparently it was built circa 1435. Pretty cool. Very nice. Uh, what's interesting about the organ in the Lord and Taylor department store, Philadelphia? Is it the fact that it's in the underwear department? <laughs> no. That's, <laughs> that's a much better answer. Is it a- the biggest... Uh, yeah, yeah. You got ever. it. Yeah, that's it is correct. in the underwear department, though. Well, you have to walk through the underwear department to get to I, it. I had no idea. I wish I'd asked that instead. That's much more <laughs> interesting. Correct. Uh, incidentally, that's twenty-eight thousand five hundred pipes, uh, and it weighs two hundred eighty-seven tons. That's amazing, isn't it? And um, it it wouldn't be the biggest. I mean, to put it in perspective, that Albert Hall is nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine, and well, that, you, I always you... think of as pretty big. <laughs> You've just answered the next question, so that's Have three. I actually? <laughs> yeah, I didn't even ask you. Okay, so that's that's three out of four. You performed Sanson's Organ Symphony at this year's BBC Proms on the same instrument. Uh, it's uh, what's it, Father Willis? Uh, no, not Father Willis. Henry Willis. Willis. Willis organ. In which year was Sanson's Organ Symphony first performed at the Proms? I'll give you three choices: eighteen eighty six, nineteen oh nine. Or 1939? 1909? Correct, yeah. Yes! Bravo, that's four out of five. When the same organ was restored by N.P. Manda in 2002, a large number of what were found in its pipes? Rats? No. (laughs) Dark. It it was actually tennis balls. Oh! I think because... I think because the Albert Hall has in the past been a venue for tennis. You know what? I I don't. I think they also found a large number of rats in there. Well, the, I'd be very yeah, you, surprised if they didn't find some form of animal. I'm sure you're right. Yeah. <laughs> There's an organ uh, in Le- in Leeds Town Hall. There's a paint pot on one of the pipes, and the pipes are beautifully painted there. So they're, I mean, coloured and uh, with kind of these patterns. And they painted the paint pot to mat to blend in with the pipes so that you don't notice it. That's lovely. All of these little things go into making them very such the, the beautiful instruments that they are. I actually, while I was researching another tangent, researching this organ quiz, I came across an all bamboo organ in the Philippines. How lovely is that? Cool. There's, there's a clip of it on YouTube. It sounds different. Does it sound a bit like panpipes? Yeah, it's very um, it's very soft, gentle sound. Yeah. Uh, so you're on five out of seven so far. I've just got two how more. Many, how many is it in total? There are two more. Ooh. So in fact... So we've got you're, mugs. You're, you've got, we've got to make mugs now. Damn. <laughs> uh, on the subject of sports... Oh which US baseball team was the first, this is hard, to install an organ in their stadium? Or, I couldn't or, name a single US baseball team no, that's, if in I fact, tried. I, I'm going to say which city... Uh, with a US baseball team was the first. 
and then Caesar no, the guest. No, absolutely no clue. Chicago Cubs, 1941. Oh. And there's a nice story. I was that... going to guess an animal. Um, I was yeah. going to guess, I don't know, a chipmunk. Wrigley Field is the name of the stadium. Um, and the first game, there's a nice story. Ray Nelson apparently was the organist, but he wasn't allowed to play during the game because it was being broadcast in the radio and the team hadn't got uh, the performance rights from BMI to play their own really? their own songs. Yeah, that's, no, that's sad. Funny. That's very funny. Uh, final question. You'll be familiar with the idiom to pull out all the stops. Which 19th century English poet is credited as the first person to use the phrase with a figurative application? You know what is really annoying me is I think I actually do know the answer to this. Uh, shall I Just give... let me, sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm very competitive. Oh, no. Matthew Arnold is the answer. Oh, I wasn't going to say that at all. I don't know who I was thinking of. I was not there, though. I do. I wouldn't have got that either. But good, hey. A very good quiz. I enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Hey, Sam, I've set up a coffee donation page for the podcast. What is a coffee donation page, Tim? It's like Patreon, in that it allows people to financially support creative projects they enjoy. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. If you'd like to buy us a coffee, if you'd like to buy us a tasty coffee, at least in the description. Just very quickly before I let you go, I'd love to hear what you think is next for you, because obviously, in fact, I read that you'd said you applied to Pembroke thinking you'd only do it for a year or so, and here we are five years later, four or five years later. I'd love to know what you think is in store for you in the future. Would you like to explore more of presenting for Radio 3 or, I don't know, Cathedral Head of Music, or what's on the horizon, do you think? I keep getting asked this at the moment. It's funny, people are like, you've been at Pembroke for five years, what's next? Mm. Um, I I always just say, I mean, I've been at Pembroke five years and I've spent those five years making the job what I sort of want it to be. It's essentially my dream job now that um, they've been wonderful enough to let me build for myself. I've spent five years getting the choirs where I want them to be, developing the schedule. And I think we've only just really got it to uh, the, the sort of ideal that I was hoping for. So now it's where the hard work starts. Now is the work of bedding that in and making it sort of permanent in college terms and not just a sort of flash and pan moment in college's history. So keep doing what I'm doing and, and do it better, mm. basically. Good answer. I like that. How about, I don't know if you knew that Salisbury anniversary had it this weekend, had its 30 year anniversary uh, of admitting girl choristers, what would you hope to see in the next thirty years in the choral sphere? I would hope to see at least one choral foundation for girls, um, where they sit, where they have the equivalent of a King's John's Maudlin New College experience with the 
the same amount of money off and all of that stuff. Um, I would hope to see a female organ scholar having gone through every uh, choral foundation in Oxbridge. I know it's not just Oxbridge that is the problem, but I think that for, for me, that is the, the world that I kind of exist in. Mm. Um, and I would, I would hope to see every college and every cathedral and every church programming music by women and minority composers, not because they feel like they have to tick a box, but because it is a genuine part of their repertoire and music that they love and so that it just becomes something that they do. I think there's still some resistance to this as if it's somehow a bad thing to be programming music by these groups because it is just a box ticking exercise. But how else are you going to get to know it and fall in love with it and mm. integrate it into your repertoire? Well done, Matt. I, I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much for having a chat, Anna. It's worth saying that you recorded that interview literally hours before the big choral news of the year dropped. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is perfect timing. St. John's College, Cambridge, one of the hyper-privileged and specialised institutions that you were talking about in the interview, announced that it's going to have mixed front and back rows. And that means boys and girls singing the top line together and adults of any suitable vocal anatomy singing the other parts behind them. It's an absolute game changer as far as I'm concerned. Big, big news. Yeah, you're very much in support of this, aren't you? Interesting to hear that possibly Anna is now swimming against the current. Would we say that? or I think she's trying to find, just as everyone is, solutions to giving opportunities to as wide a range of people as possible from a point that starts really lopsided right mm -hmm. the history is really bent towards boys and therefore you've got to find a way of leveling the playing field somehow mm -hmm. and uh, she's trying to find solutions to that and she's got her ideas about how what solutions she's got it's really interesting to hear some of the things that she's considering when she's Mm -hmm. presenting those solutions. things that i would never have thought of mm. and john's are, are presenting theirs my gut instinct is more towards the john's model at the moment um and what i love about the fact that they're doing it is because they already hold this incredibly central place in the tradition um all the satellite parish churches across the world actually will be looking to st john's and listening to the recordings that come out of there and watching them do the old BBC broadcast and lots of radio and that kind of thing. And they will hear this sound and therefore the tradition worldwide will evolve because they'll they'll all be looking in at this central mm. spoke and as it turns they will turn with it. And I think that that's a that's a really good use of the powerful position that they currently hold. Yeah, yeah.